Well, good morning, family. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you. I encourage you to take your Bible, if you would, and open to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 78. Good news, the deacons got a great deal on a decorator to redo our sanctuary. <laughs> Seriously, I love to see all the VBS decorations in place. But I suppose that some folks might ask, why all the effort to do Vacation Bible School? It's expensive. It takes a lot of volunteers. It takes a lot of labor. Folks have been up here all week getting things together, putting decorations up, uh, getting food and this and that and the other. Why go to all of that effort? Well, the answer is actually here in Psalm 78. So let's look at it for a little while. The little inscription at the beginning of the psalm, again, in Psalms, most of these little inscriptions are actually part of the text, and it is here. It says, a mascal of Asaph. A mascal is a word we're not exactly sure what it means, but it probably means or refers to a type of song. And of Asaph, it's written by Asaph, and you wonder who in the world is Asaph. Asaph was appointed by King David to be the chief musician, the head of the worship music for the, for the people of Israel. There's 12 of the Psalms that bear his name. He's the, the author, the composer of 12 of the Psalms, including the one before us this morning. Verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. That's Bible talk for, Hey! Wake up! Listen to me. What I'm trying to say here is important and you need to listen up. He goes on, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our forefathers have told us. He says, I'm going to tell you a parable. Now, a parable, we know that Jesus used parables uh, quite a bit. What's a parable? A parable is simply a story with a point. And he says this parable, or as he goes on, he says, I'm going to say, give you dark sayings. And that's an odd phrase. When you read it here in the ESV, some, some translations will say riddles or hidden things. And that's what it means. It means that things that, that are a little bit mysterious that we have trouble understanding, we have to think about. So he's going to give a parable, a story with a point, and dark things, hidden things, things we have to think about. And yet, he added to that, things that we've all heard before. We've heard these, we've known these, they've been told to us by our ancestors. So it's not new things, it's old things we already know, yet he's telling it in a way to be a parable that we have to think about to get the point. That's the psalm. You'll look at this and you'll say, wow, it's 72 verses long. And you realize we're in deep trouble because you know how long I can preach on a few verses. And good news, I'm not going to preach on all 72 verses. We're going to focus on the first eight verses of this psalm. But before we get into those, the rest of those verses, we've already read the first three. But before we get into the rest of them, I'm going to take us to the, to the rest of the psalm and just kind of summarize for us 
the big picture because he's going to he says he's going to tell this parable, these stories, and and that's what he does in verse nine and through the end of the psalm, through verse seventy-two. Not surprising, these stories he say are familiar to the people; they're not new things. What he's going to do is he's going to relate stories from the history of Israel, things that they've heard from their forefathers for quite a long time. They know these well. But it helps us to understand his point if we get at least a clue what he says in the stories. In verses 9 to 53, what Asaph does is he recounts the story of that generation that God led, that generation of Israelites that God led out of the land of Egypt and through the wilderness to the promised land. We, we might call it the Exodus generation. And he recounts this sad story of the Exodus generation. And we say, wait a minute, the Exodus generation, that story isn't a sad story. Because they were in slavery, and they had been a people in slavery for 400 years. God delivered them from slavery. That was good news, that was an exciting story, and that's good stuff. It's good stuff until we read their story. And when they left Egypt... And they, they leave Egypt and they see these miraculous things that God did. You know the stories of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt to finally get Pharaoh to say, get out of here, go already. And then they come to the Red Sea and the, the sea is blocking them and Pharaoh then changes his mind and he, he starts coming after them with his, with his soldiers and, and God puts a, a pillar of fire between the Egyptians and the Israelites and keeps the Egyptians back while then God opens up the Red Sea and they part, they go across on dry land. They see these marvelous miracles. And every day that they're in the wilderness, they see God provide miraculous food every morning, manna that comes from heaven on the ground. They eat food from heaven every single morning they wake up, except the Sabbath on Saturday when God doesn't send the manna, but on the day before on Friday, He sends double and if you try on any other day to keep the manna from one day to the next, it spoils. But on Friday, when they keep the manna from Friday to the Sabbath, it doesn't spoil. Every day is a miracle. And despite all of that, as Asaph recounts their history, he talks about how their story is one of doubt and complaining and rebellion and disbelief. Verse 17, he writes, you can see there, Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Then look at verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. And down in verse 40, how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. That's just a sampling from Asaph of, of how these people responded to all the miracles they saw. And so you know your Bible history. You know your Bible stories. Because of their unbelief, that generation died off in the wilderness. God took them up to the promised land. They didn't have the, they didn't believe God to go in, and so He had that generation die off, and it was the next generation that went in to the promised land. In verses 54 and 55, we see that next generation. He drove out the nations before them, verse 55. He apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. That, that next generation went into the land, inherited it, and settled there. 
That generation followed God, led by Joshua. In all the days of Joshua, the people followed God. And in the next generation, all the people followed God. They continued to follow God. But the third generation then fell away. We find them in verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. But they turned away and they acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. A bow like a bow and arrow. He says it's a bow that when you go and pull it back, instead of, instead of firing on the enemy, it turns around and fires back at you. That kind of a deceitful bow. He says they twisted like a bow that goes bad. And he says, that's this generation. And that began a period of time in Israel's history that lasted for 400 years. You can read about that history in the book of the Judges. The people who, though they had followed God, now they turned away. And, and there's a cycle in the book of Judges where they, they turn to God, they follow Him for just a little while, and then they fall away in the rebellion and in, and in disbelief and unbelief. And then after a while, things get so bad, they come back and they repent and they follow God for a brief little while and they fall away very soon. And it goes over again and again and again through the book of Judges for 400 years. Finally, God has had it with the people and He brings judgment on the nation and Asaph describes it in verses 60-64 to of this psalm. And you find it in the history of the Old Testament back in 1 Samuel 4. It's a time when, when the enemy, the Philistines, overran the people of Israel and they brought great misery and suffering to the people. They killed the priests. They stole the Ark of the Covenant and took it back into captivity in the Philistine turf. And that's what he describes in those verses 60 to 64 is the judge's generation. And finally, in the last verse of the psalm, he takes us, he brings us to his own time, to Asaph's generation, to his day. And he, he notes there about his own day in verses 68. Let me just read quickly. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion which he loves, and he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfold. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd his Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. He says that in his own time, God had, had brought the, the nation of Israel. He had lifted them up by elevating the tribe of Judah, by moving the place of worship from Shiloh to Mount Zion, in the tribe of Judah and elevating David to be the king. And things are going marvelously well. In the time of David, they are enjoying security and prosperity like they never had. The, the people were following God and things are going, uh, in Asaph's view, they are going swimmingly well. And so we wonder, what is Asaph also hot and bothered about? Why does he start this psalm, Hey, listen up! Learn a lesson here when everything around him is going very, very well. And that is the mystery, the parable. And as he's gone back through Israel's history, he's been noticing the tendency 
and the ease with which people fall away from following God. He's noting the dire consequences that happen when they fall away from God. He's noting the mercy of God while God has brought them back, and yet despite the mercy of God, the people's tendency to fall away again. God in His grace brings him back. And, and that's part of the mystery is why in the world does God still love these people? And why do these people keep falling away? But here's the point of the parable. His point is, despite all the blessings and all the wonderful things going on in the land of Israel at this time, in Asaph's generation, he realizes that we are merely one generation away from disaster if the next generation rejects God. And that has been our tendency as a people. That's Asaph's concern. That's the, the reason for this psalm. And that makes, and his concern is that they will be like in verse 8. Look with me in verse 8. That he doesn't want this generation to be like their fathers. Verse 8, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Asaph does not want his, this generation to become like the other generations. The German philosopher Hegel made a statement many of us have heard, most of you know, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. There's a tendency for all of us to ignore history and to repeat the mistakes of the past. And that's what Asaph is concerned about as he looks around at his people and at his generation. He says, we are very likely to go down the same path of the generations before us and lose the next generation. And that's what makes Asaph very contemporary. Because you see, there is hardly a day that goes by, certainly a week doesn't go by, but that another article, another email, another whatever comes across my desk, based on survey research saying that we, the church, are losing the next generation. And we don't want to be like, like uh, Israel in their history. We, we want, like Asaph, to not lose the next generation. And so church leaders all over our nation are concerned and, and worried and frustrated and going, how do we not lose the next generation? And that's an important question. It's a valid question. How do we avoid losing the next generation of the church? Is the solution that we need to get a great band and a fog machine for our services? Is the solution that we need to get a young, good-looking pastor? Maybe. Or maybe we just need skinny jeans for the old pastor. I like this t-shirt. My pastor has skinnier jeans than your pastor. You know, now I'd probably get a pair of skinny jeans if they didn't make me look fatter and sillier. Uh, it, they're wasted on somebody my age and my shape. 
And personally, though, I think fog machines are pretty cool. I like fog machines. But I really don't think that fog machines and skinny jeans and bands or whatever else are the answer to how do we not lose the next generation. I don't think they're even close. God's unchanging Word always has right answers. And as Asaph is concerned with this very, this very issue, and as the, the reality is, is while culture and while lots of external things, the heart of man remains the same, and that's why God's Word is as relevant today as it was when it was written 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. It's as relevant today as it was then. And so we do well, well to come here and listen to what Asaph has to say. No offense to skinny jeans and bands and fog machines. Nothing inherently wrong with any of those, but the answer to the question of how do we not lose the next generation is found here in Psalm 78. Asaph addresses it in verses 1 through 7. That's going to be our real focus. We've already read the first three verses. Let me... Briefly, in, in the next verses, verses 4 through 7, help us to see six keys to reaching the next generation. Whether, you, whether you're Asaph try, trying to reach his nephew or whether you're trying to reach your nephew in this generation, whether he's a millennial or whatever the next generation is going to be after that, whatever they're going to call them, Asaph tells us what he intends to do and he intends for us, God is telling what he intends for us to do to avoid this problem. Let me read the verses, verses 4 through 7. We will not hide them. He's talking about the works, the great wonders and the, and the mighty things that God has done. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope on God and not forget the works of God but keep His commandments. Six keys to reaching the next generation. The first from verse 4 he says, we will tell the coming generation. We need to be intentional. It's a commitment, a priority, a determined effort to communicate where we don't just think, well, it'll just happen. My kids are going to follow Jesus because I'm a Christian. Because we go to church once in a while. Rather, there's a plan and a strategizing. You know the old saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And so it should be with us. If we think it'll just happen, it won't happen. And so I think that among all of us as believers, there needs to be a redoubling, a redoubling of the 
of the intentional thinking and the effort and the planning for how are we going to communicate to the next generation where they will follow Christ. Intentional. He says we will not hide them. We won't hide the things of God, the spiritual truth from our children. You know, there are some folks who adopt the passive mentality of a politically correct age. They say, you know, we're not going to push Jesus down the throats of our children. But rather, we'll allow them in their own time, in their own way, to make up their own mind about whether they want to follow Jesus or not. You realize that's a stupid idea. Foolishness. And it's flawed thinking. And as parents, we don't apply that logic to anything else that's important. I've never yet heard parents apply that to brushing teeth. Billy, brush your teeth. I don't want to. Oh, you know what? We're not going to push you, Billy, to brush his teeth. You know, we'll just let you grow up and someday if you decide that's important, you can brush your teeth. No, every parent I know is, Billy, go brush your teeth. Why? Because I said so. That thing we said we would never tell our kids. Because if you don't, all your teeth will rot and fall out of your head. You know, whatever. We don't apply it to school. I don't want to go to school. Go. I'm sick. No, you're not. My arm is broken. (laughs) No, it's not. You know, go to school. You see, whenever something we think is important, when when it's a big deal, we don't wait for our kids to make up their own mind. We tell them, here's what we're going to do. So it is with this. You see, if what the Bible says is true, the things of God are not optional. They are essential. What we are dealing with here is life and death. It's vital. Scripture says, John chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has life. But he who does not believe in the Son of God does not have the life, but the wrath of God abides on him, remains with him. This is not inconsequential. It is a matter of eternal life, eternal death. God doesn't think it's optional. In verse 5, which we read, it says, He, God, commanded our forefathers to teach they're children. It's a command from God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You can make a note of it and go back and read it on your own. It's a command we need to teach children. The sad reality, as I look at parents, as I look at all of us as parents, it is so easy for us to occupy our time and preoccupy ourselves with our efforts and our resources to make sure that our kids grow academically. To make sure that our kids excel in sports. To make sure that our kids are well-rounded and they have lots of opportunity in the arts. and Do all of that and we end up neglecting or we invest very little in this one thing that God has commanded that we are to do. To teach them who God is, to teach them the things of God, the Word of God, to raise up our children, as Proverbs says, in the way they should go. It needs to be intentional. 
Secondly, in verse 4, also in verse 4, I notice that he says, we will not hide these things. We will tell to the coming generation. We do this. Asaph's opening line in this psalm is, listen, O my people, or give ear, O my people, to my teaching. He's addressing the community of faith. He's saying that this is for all of us. Every one of us personally is to be involved in this endeavor. It's not just to parents. It's not just to those of you who have kids that this is your job. He's he's addressing the community of faith. So whether you're married with kids or whether you're married and don't have kids, whether your grandparents and your kids are raised, whether you're you know, whether you are single, whatever your your condition, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you need to have a concern for the next generation. Even if you're a teenager, you ought to be concerned about the generations coming behind you. We need to be personally involved in this. Every one of us needs to be investing in the lives of children, teens, young adults. Not just the job of our youth pastor or the children's workers or the elders. It's a job for all of us. And that is why we do vacation Bible schools. It's a way for our church to be involved and to be, and to be um, invested in the next generation. It's why we do junior camp and why we do youth camps. And it's why we do, it's why we do Sunday school. It's why we do children's church. It's why we do uh, Awana. It's why we do all of these things working with young people. It's a way for our church as a whole to invest and to come alongside parents in helping to teach and train the next generation. By the way, in my opinion, this should be such a high priority with every one of us as believers that there should never, ever be a lack for a volunteer in any youth or children's ministry or young adult ministry. should never be a lack. Sadly, there is often lack of volunteers. It shouldn't be. You can start tonight. Show up tonight. Stick around for Vacation Bible School. Help out. Call up Pastor Aaron and say, hey, you need any help for camp? Or with youth group, call up Harley and say, hey, does Juana need some help next fall? It does. He's shaking his head yes. Children's church. They need workers in children's church. Lots of opportunity. I'd love a couple to come alongside and say, you know what? I'd like to invest in college kids, young singles, young adults. Come talk to me. But not just personally involved in programs, but we also need to be personally involved in growing personal relationships with the next generation. See, the number one factor in retaining young adults, keeping them following Christ and and involved in the church, it's not programs. The number one factor, all the research shows, while everybody's disagreeing on different things that churches should be doing, the one thing everybody agrees is when you look at who sticks around and who doesn't, who continues to follow Christ and who doesn't, the number one thing that determines that is parents who are following Christ. And second, very close second to that, is significant relationships with other Christian adults. 
We need to be involved personally in the lives of the next generation. In my own personal story, I can, I can vouch for folks, so many folks who poured into my life. From the time I was a little kid like Ben and Sheila Boykins who adopted me kind of as their extra grandchild when we lived so far away from, from my real grandparents. They were there every birthday, every Christmas, every once in a while, hey, come over, stay at our house. And as a grandkid, they're godly folks who pointed me to Christ. Mr. Watkins, Ben Watkins, who hired me as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old to come over and mow his grass. And, and when I'd go over there, and I, he, would, he taught me lessons about hard work and meticulous work and, and all that stuff. He paid me well, which was why I loved going over there. And he always served lunch. And I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, I realized that was intentional. He served lunch, so we'd sit down, and as we sat down, we'd talk about life, and he'd talk about Jesus, and he'd encourage me to follow Christ. So grateful for that man. As a, as a teenager, it was Orv and Mary Mitchell, youth sponsors, youth volunteers, helping with our senior high group, and, and particularly Orv transformed my life and the life of so many other kids. The worst Sunday school teacher I ever had in my life. He was a horrible teacher, but he loved Jesus and he loved us. And that spoke powerfully in my heart when you saw a genuine man who just loved Jesus so much. And I remember saying, God, I don't have any talents, any abilities. I don't think I can do anything to serve you, but if I can be like Orv Mitchell and make a difference, I think I can do that. Would you make me like Orv? Or Mama B, a lady in her 90s who prayed me through high school and college. She was confined to a wheelchair, but she had a mind. She said, I made a deal with God. I said, you can have my body, but let me have my mind as long as I'm alive so I can pray. And that she did. And every Sunday she'd grab me. And, and if she didn't see me on Sunday, she'd sometimes call me during the week. Hey, Keith, I'm praying for you. What can I pray for? And the next time I'd see her, she'd, she knew what she was praying. She'd say, hey, I've been praying about that. How's it going? I went away to college. I'd come home. I'd just show up at church and she'd just look at me and she'd wheel over to me and she'd Keith, I've been praying for these things. How's it going? What else can I be praying for? Those are just a few examples of dozens of people who shaped my life, who pointed me to Christ. And I'm here today because of them. And I wonder, what can you do? Who are you investing in, befriending and encouraging in Christ? That's what makes the difference really in losing the next generation or not. It's not about programs. It's not about lights and bands and anything else. It's about one-on-one -on -one interaction caring enough to be involved in investing in the life of a younger person. Thirdly, what do we say then? Verse 4, what do we, when we get involved with them, what do, we, what do we need to say? Verse 4, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His, and His might and the wonders that He has done. Share testimony. Tell what God has done, who God is and what He's done. Share your personal story how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? How did you come to realize you were a sinner? You needed a Savior. Jesus Christ died for your sins and, and you came to put your trust in Him. Tell your story. Tell what a difference Jesus is making in your life right now. 
how you're growing. Share your struggles and hurts. Be real in that. Young folks need to see and what they need to hear is the reality of faith as it's lived out in our life. To see that faith in Christ isn't going to church and following a bunch of rules. It's a vibrant relationship with the living God. But not only share your story, share history, share Bible stories, share Christian history, how God has worked in the past. Share how young people need to hear stories of the Scripture and stories of ancient days like 50 years ago and 200 years ago. One of the real shortcomings, I believe, of modern Christianity, modern evangelicalism, is that we are so afraid of traditionalism being caught up in traditions that we've lost sight of the value of tradition. That we are connected to something big. That God has been doing from the throughout the ages of human history and that as people of faith we are connected to Adam all the way up to people of our of faith of our own time. God is doing something big. And if I can paraphrase Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, right after He gives that hall of fame of faith and He's talked about how we are incomplete without them and they are incomplete without us. And He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, as I paraphrase it, let us run the race before us and let's run it well. Let's run our leg of the race. It's a relay race. We've got the baton now. Let's run it well and let's prepare to hand the baton off to the next generation. We're to share our testimony. Verse 5, something else we're to say. Verse 5, it says, He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children. We are to teach God's Word. God has spoken and that is a, an amazing thing. The, the living Creator God has spoken. This is His Word. If this is not the Word of God, we're wasting time being here. We might as well all go home. There's no reason at all to be here. But if this is the Word of God, and we believe it is, and folks, this is a treasure. Something for us to cherish and something to pass off with great concern and great care. You and I need to we can't afford to neglect the, the command that God has given here to teach it to the children, to the next generation. And for us to be able to teach it, we need to, we need to read it. We need to know it. We need to know it enough so that we can teach it. So I wonder, what are you doing to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God so that you can teach it more effectively and better to the next generation? And I wonder, who are you helping? Who am I helping to to learn and to know God's Word? Who are we encouraging in their own learning of God's Word? Fifthly, the fifth key here, I find in verses 6 and 7, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. He's got three aims for the next generation in those verses. 
The first, he says, is that they might know them. That's God's words. And that word know doesn't mean an intellectual knowledge. That Yeah, I know that God said this and I know that God said that, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not an intellectual knowledge. It is an experiential knowledge. It's not that I just have learned about God, but I have come to know God through His Word. That's the difference. See, what he's looking for is real knowledge. To know the Word of God so that, the second thing he's aiming for, is that these folks set their hope in God. Because they know God, they now hope in Him. They place their confidence. That's another way to say that, that word. To place their confidence in God. So that they, next he says, so that they follow His commandments. They keep His commandments. So what he's looking for is the next generation to follow God because their confidence is in God because they know God. He's looking for these folks to be real in their trust, in their belief in God. And for us to produce that in the next generation, we have to be that. We will not produce a generation that follows God because they trust God because they know God if we don't know God and trust Him and follow Him. We we can't force faith. We can only encourage it to grow. So it means we're going to, instead of just pushing it down their throats and getting them to regurgitate things we want them to, to say and that we want to hear, It means that we listen, we ask questions, we interact, we wrestle along with them as they struggle with doubts and difficult things. We cannot push someone to faith, but we lead them there through our example. And so we have to ask ourselves, does our life match what we profess? Does our life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, is it the same as what we Sing about and what we say and what we profess on Sunday is it all the same? Are we the same people in our den at home as we are in church on Sunday? If not, don't expect the next generation to follow. Because young people have a habit of believing our lives over our words every single time. One final key that's here in this psalm as we look at investing in this next generation, reaching them. Verse Again, in verse 6, he says that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children. Looking to instill in that next generation the, uh, the sense of responsibility the concept of responsibility. I think that in the evangelical church we have sometimes done a disservice to the next generation when we make everything about them. When we tailor everything to them. Now, we have graded Sunday school. We have Sunday school for for this grade and that grade. It's age appropriate. We have children's church. We have youth groups. and We do all that because there's value in that. But sometimes it's easy to take all that and, and, the, 
And kids can grow up with the mentality that everything is about me and directed for me. And it's a horrible thing to wake up to. One day you come to church and suddenly youth group is over and I'm supposed to be an adult and everything isn't geared toward me and what do I do now? And so I walk away to find something that is geared towards me and it's just about me. But you see, the reality is the Christian life is not about me. Have you noticed that in Scripture? The Christian life is about Christ and about others, not about me. And one of the things we have to do, I think, is we have to help the next generation to understand as we are in relationship with them, as we are living the Christian life and as we are instilling our testimony and as we're teaching the Word of God, and as we need to help them to understand in the process that they're not the end point of God's mercy. God didn't create you and me to be cups that just collect God's mercy and it all stops here. His grace fills us up and we're all cool. Rather, and it says it right here, we are trying to train this generation to understand that they have a responsibility to the next generation. Not just someday when I'm an adult, but I think again as it really applies to all of us to be concerned about those who are coming behind us, even if you're a teenager, to be thinking about those who are in, you know, if you're high school, those in junior high or those who are in, you know, in primary or whatever. It's part of our purpose why we were created. You know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 about our salvation, but 2.10 is important to go along with that. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which... God prepared in advance for us to do. He's created all of us for a purpose. The purpose isn't to sit around and just enjoy God's blessing. It is to be busy doing God's business. And God's business for us is to create disciples, followers of Jesus. We have a responsibility to pass on the truth to the next generation and beyond and to any who don't know Jesus. Those are the six things I see here in this psalm that we need to be doing and that are key if we're going to reach the next generation. You know, certainly the reality is things in, in the next days, in the next years, things will need to change in the church, in the chapel of the lake, as we minister to new generations who come up among us. All of us who are older and understand that life is a continual process of change. Things are not the same here at the chapel as they were 30 years ago. There are some things that don't change and should not change, but there are some things that can change and should change. Maybe a fog machine. Probably not. Maybe a pastor with skinny jeans someday by the time they're outmoded, just like, you know, I don't know. No, it, But that's not the issue. What is a reality, all, can I speak to all of us older folks for a moment and those of you who are approaching old as I am, we need to be continually thinking how can and looking for how can we make Younger people feel at home here, be comfortable here, want to be here with us, even when that may at times make us a little less comfortable. 
that's part of what we need to do. We need to do that at home. We need to be doing that in the church. Young people, you guys, if you wouldn't mind, have a little patience with us old folks, older folks. Have some grace with us. The reality is we know change is inevitable and change is necessary in some things. But we're tired of change. We've had a lot of change in our lifetime. You kind of get burnt out on it. Right? Especially with computers. I'm so tired of learning new operating systems. I used to be a techie. Now I hate technology. I say all that. The truth is we need each other. Young people, we need you. We need your enthusiasm. We need your vitality. We need your creativity. We need your gifts to help us as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus. Young people, you need us old folks. You need perspective. You need experience. That's why we've tried to work hard at the chapel to try to be a little bit of everything for all of us because the reality is we're a family. And it's a family of old people. It's a family of young people. So we've tried, we haven't gone to contemporary services and traditional services because, you know what? Us old people need to hear some of the music we don't like. And you, you young folks need to hear some of the music you've never heard before that's old. And because it's all part of who we are as the family of Christ. And we need one another. The common ground we share is the love of our, is the love for Jesus Christ. And the commitment and the love to the unchanging Word of God. And our love for those two things is greater than differences that we have generationally. As I look around the room, I'm so grateful for all of you who I see. I see so many of you who are investing in the lives of the next generation. I applaud that and I thank you for that. Keep it up. I see so many of you young folks who are bucking the trends. You're not walking away from the church or walking away from Christ, but you love Jesus. You love His Word. You're growing in Him. You seek to serve Him. And so many of you, even as young people, I'm seeing investing in the next generation. A lot of you serve with Awana. You're helping with VBS. And I applaud you guys. And I'm so grateful for you. I pray for you young people. I pray for us old people. I pray that God will meld us in the church and that we will not lose the next generation, not only in our church, but that we'll be reaching out and grabbing the next generation and the community around us because they're lost and they need Jesus. And we need to work together if we're going to reach them. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear this. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in our own little worlds and and uh, start living for ourselves and miss the fact that You've created us with a purpose. And we are to be investing in reaching folks for Jesus Christ and especially uh, the the mandate in Acts 1-8 is to be reaching Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our, Our Jerusalem is the community around us. It's our family. It's our church. It's in our local community. Father, it's going to take some intentionality. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take some um, it's going to take some thinking about how we do that. 
Father, I pray that You would this morning use Your Word here to encourage us as well as to challenge us. May we be busy serving Jesus as we work together, young and old, to serve Christ. May we be effective in reaching to our community with the good news, the life-saving Gospel of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.